very good. Good evening. We can, we can start. We're very pleased to have Tim Button here today. He's a lecturer at Cambridge, a fellow of St. John's. His book, The Limits of Realism, was published last year. And today he's going to talk to us about the weight of truth. Uh, thanks very much. Um, with this microphone here, I feel a little bit like I'm about to do some sort of jazz number, particularly with the piano. So I'm a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. Um, okay, so yes, I'm going to talk to you today about truth. Um, and there's a massive sense of hubris, I feel, as I, as I tell you that, because the Aristotelian societies had an awful lot of very, very, very good papers on truth. Uh, and throwing my oar in amongst them just seems like a, a bad mistake to begin with. I'm just setting myself up for a fall. Well, what I'd like to do is to explain why I'm not a certain species of deflationist about truth. And so, in particular, I'm not a minimalist about truth. That's the upshot of today's paper. So before I explain anything about that, just a little bit of scene setting for those who aren't too embroiled in the truth literature. Deflationists about truth sometimes like to style themselves by saying, oh, you might think that truth is a really complicated, mysterious, deep, dark concept. Um, but it's not. Actually, it's very easy to understand how it works. It's a lightweight notion. Um, hence the title, The Weight of Truth. Uh, for those of you who thought that this might be a talk on jurisprudence or something along those lines, you should at least have read the subtitle and then it would have been very clear that it wasn't about jurisprudence. Um, but that metaphor of truth being lightweight or heavyweight is not particularly helpful, um, although there's a lot of ink being spilt on it. There are some more concrete proposals for what a deflationary approach to truth might look like, though. One of them is disquotationalism. So the disquotationalist thinks of sentences as the primary bearers of truth, and they say that everything there is to know about truth can be exhausted by the scheme, the sentence P is true, if and only if P. Uh, minimalists about truth, principally Paul Horwich, but there's a bunch of other ones, um, think something very similar, except instead of thinking that sentences are the primary bearers of truth, they think that propositions are. And then they tell us that everything there is to know about truth can be exhausted by the scheme, the proposition that P is true, if and only if P. It's a very attractive view for all sorts of reasons, because if you really could know everything there is to know about truth just by looking at that very simple scheme, it would indeed be a not very mysterious concept. Now, most objections to minimalism take the form, I hear what you say about truth, but I think you've missed out some important further fact. So you've just ended up with too minimal a notion. That's not going to be the shape of my objection today. My objection is, I don't really even hear what you say, minimalist. You haven't yet managed to articulate the theory of truth, let alone articulate something which exhausts everything there is to know. So it's a slightly different kind of criticism of minimalism from the normal criticism. And the way I'm going to try to get that criticism going is by thinking about what propositions are and also what propositional constituents are. Because minimalists think that propositions are the primary bearers of truth and then don't often say very much about propositions. To investigate what propositions are and what propositional constituents are, I'm going to look back to the history of analytic philosophy and look in particular to Russell's Gray's Elegy argument. And my claim is that the lessons that you get from reading the Gray's Elegy argument will teach us why minimalism is wrong. And this leads me to the second sense in which my talk is deeply hubristic, because I'm going to try to explain to you why a position is mistaken by leaning upon one of the most notoriously impregnable uh, totally not understood passages from analytic philosophy, as if somehow that will make light dawn upon this whole stuff. So there's something dialectically very suspicious about what's going on, but that's, that's going to be my, my project. 
So in slightly more detail, um, I'm going to start off by talking to you about what propositions and propositional constituents might be, and then explain how I understand Russell's great elegy argument. I'm then going to talk not about minimalism about truth, but instead about minimalism about reference. And that's because it's just a bit easier to get the lessons from the great elegy argument applying to the case of reference than it is for the case of truth. And that's what I'll do in the third section of the talk. And then you'll see why minimalism about reference is rubbish. And then in the fourth section, I'll transfer all of those lessons across to the case of truth, and you'll see why minimalism about truth is rubbish. And then in the ninth section of the talk, I'll explain why the minimalists went wrong. Now, you'll, the astute among you will realise that there's approximately four sections missing from my talk. Those are in the circulated paper, but I just don't have time to cover them uh, in this talk. Unfortunately, this means I don't have time to consider any objections to my view. It just so happens that that's how things have panned out. Um, but I'm happy to take any questions about them if you want. Um, okay, oh, one other thing about the circulated paper. If you have looked at it, you might be confused as to why everything which is italicized is also underlined. That's just because I was told it had to be that way. Um, but apparently it didn't have to be that way. So it's just really horrible to look at. Um, my apologies for that. Um, okay. <clears throat> so without further ado, I'm going to talk to you about what propositional constituents are and how the Gray's elegy argument works. So let's suppose that we think of propositions as being in some way structured, as having components to them. So if you consider the proposition that Hesperus rotates, you might think that that has a particular part which has some particularly important relation with Hesperus. Maybe it refers to or denotes or picks out the planet Hesperus. Um, now, what exactly that relationship is and what exactly propositional constituents are, I haven't yet said very much about. But the very first thing I need to do is to introduce you to some notation, which is totally ubiquitous. And it is that we use angled brackets to introduce propositional constituents. So armed with this notation, I can tell you that angle bracket Hesperus is a constituent of angle bracket Hesperus rotates. Now, there's a problem that becomes immediate now that I've said that, which is this is going to be a really horrible talk to give because I keep having to use the phrase angled brackets, and that's not very, uh, very easy to follow. In certain cases, I can tell you how to pronounce these angle brackets. When we're looking at this bit here, the angle brackets around an entire sentence are to be read as the proposition that. So I can say at least something more intelligible. Angle bracket Hesperus is a constituent of the proposition that Hesperus rotates. But I don't have any very good way to pronounce angle brackets when they occur around a singular term, like Hesperus. So I'm just going to have to keep saying angle brackets an awful lot. I'm sorry about that. It's actually, I think, though, a point of quite deep significance that there is no good way to pronounce these angle brackets. In fact, most of the talk will trade upon the fact that there is no good way of understanding them, at least no good way of understanding them for minimalist purposes. So at least if I keep pointing out the fact that they're an ugly bit of technical notation that will you know, prime you in the right way to realize that there's something deeply suspicious going on with them. Okay, so uh, angle bracket Hesperus is, in our terminology, a constituent of the proposition that Hesperus rotates. By the way, Hesperus does rotate. Um, I had a little fact-finding mission on Wikipedia today, and its rotation is very interesting. Uh, be prepared for more facts about Hesperus's rotation as the talk unfolds. Okay, so we've got the idea of propositional constituents and propositions. We don't know a lot about them. Um, I suppose I could say more. I could say, look, um, the way in which I say angle bracket Hesperus might put you in mind of the way I might say quote Hesperus, um, you know, explicitly having to pronounce the, uh, the syntax as you find it on the page. And actually, that would be a really instructive analogy, one that I'll be developing quite a lot during this talk. It's also the basis for a very nice observation by Marion Davies, who gives us a nice way to think about angle brackets. She says... Just as quotation marks perform semantic assent, 
So these angled brackets perform intentional ascent, lifting you out to the world of propositions and their constituents. Still pretty mysterious what these things are, but for now I'm just going to plow ahead. If angle bracket Hesperus is a constituent of the proposition that Hesperus rotates, we now face a crucial decision point about what to say about propositions and their constituents. We know that Hesperus is phosphorus, that's given to us by astronomical observation. But should we say that angle bracket Hesperus is identical with angle bracket phosphorus? And should we say that the proposition that Hesperus rotates is just the same proposition as the proposition that phosphorus rotates? It's very easy to motivate a negative answer to both questions. And the way you do that is following Frege, you raise what are now called Frege puzzles. So just very quickly running through that, how, how that works. Everyone knows that Hesperus is Hesperus without peering into the night sky. It requires some effort to find out that Hesperus is phosphorus. So you might well think that there's a difference between the proposition that Hesperus is Hesperus and the proposition that Hesperus is phosphorus. But they only differ in one of their constituents. One of them has angle bracket Hesperus, where the other one has angle bracket phosphorus. So you'll be led to say that angle bracket Hesperus is not the same as angle bracket phosphorus. And similarly, you'll be led to say that those two propositions are distinct propositions. A broadly Phrygian approach to propositional constituents is all I mean by the thought process I've just run through. A broadly Phrygian approach is one which says that even though Hesperus is phosphorus, there's a distinction between the propositional constituents that we're talking about, and there's a distinction between those two propositions. It's clear why it's Phrygian. Let me just emphasize why it's only broadly Phrygian. Frege has some specific things he wants to say about propositional constituents, i.e. senses in Phrygian terminology, but we don't have to follow him that far. We don't have to buy into the positive account he gives, only the bit where he says there must be some kind of distinction between these propositional constituents and the things they pick out, because you can pick out the same thing in many different ways. But a broadly Phrygian approach to propositional constituents is all you need in order to get Russell's Gray's Elegy argument going. So I'm now going to explain Russell's Gray's Elegy argument to you. And I should say before I begin, if there are any objections to this way of reading the Gray's Elegy argument, it's all down to Michael Potter, who's just sitting over there. So you can take it up with him if you think that this is a misreading. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty, pretty good reading. Uh, in fact, it makes sense of what would otherwise be a completely uh, nonsensical paper as far as I'm concerned. Now, that's too strong, but you, you get what I mean. Okay, so the very first thought in running through the Gray's Elegy argument um, is something like the following. When you encounter angle brackets as they appear on the page, you might well think that they indicate some kind of one-place function. And just to give you a little indication of um, why that might work, suppose you were, you were encountering curly brackets as they're used in set theory. So you might say, ah, oh, well, look, um, Hesperus is phosphorus. And as a result, curly bracket Hesperus, which is to say the singleton set that contains only Hesperus, is just the same set as the singleton set which contains only phosphorus, i.e. curly bracket phosphorus. So when you come across curly brackets around singular terms in set theory, they do indeed indicate a one-place function from objects to their singleton sets. You might naively think that the same is true of these angled brackets, which are dealing with intentional ascent and propositional constituents. So in general, you'd think that if A is identical to B, then angle bracket A is identical to angle bracket B. But that would just be a mistake if you've adopted a broadly Phrygian approach to propositional constituents. After all, the motivating thought is that whilst Hesperus is phosphorus, angle bracket Hesperus is not the same as angle bracket phosphorus. <coughs> so immediately, if you've adopted a broadly Phrygian <coughs> approach to propositional constituents, you'll be led to say, as Michael Potter does, the notation angle bracket C is misleading. Angle bracket C does not depend functionally on C. Or 
as I would like to state the first lesson from the Gray's Elegy argument, angle brackets are potentially misleading. They don't indicate a one-place function. That's pretty much just following from the definition of what it means to have a broadly Frigian approach to propositional constituents. Of course, you could have some other approach, in which case maybe they wouldn't be potentially misleading. But for now, we're just sticking with this broadly Frigian approach. If they're potentially misleading, we obviously don't want to be misled. So we might just stop using them because they're a bad bit of notation. But before we do that, we need to think about what it was we were using them for and whether we actually need to use them to say that. So in particular, we wanted to say, when I first introduced you uh, to this whole idea of angle brackets and intentional assent, that there's some particular constituent of the proposition that Hesperus rotates, and that constituent somehow refers to Hesperus. So we want to say that angle bracket Hesperus refers to Hesperus, and more generally, we want to say something like angle bracket C denotes or refers to or picks out C. But if we've stopped using angle brackets because they're so terrifyingly potentially misleading, we won't be able to say this anymore. Um, if we get rid of them altogether, it seems like we won't be able to say much at all about reference, as Michael Potter says. If we use a new symbol, say D, then we'll have to express the relationship that we wanted, which we were formally expressing by saying angle bracket C denotes C, by now saying that D denotes C. And that's no longer in any way explanatory of the general relationship which we wanted to describe, but it has to be expressed afresh for each denoting concept. So we'll have to go through and say, you know, that concept there refers to Hesperus. That one also refers to Hesperus. This denoting concept yeah, that doesn't refer to anything at all. And you just go through this long, unsystematic list. So we'll be unable to say anything general unless we employ a technical device like angle brackets. And hence the second lesson of the Gray's Elegy argument. Abandoning the use of angle brackets will leave us altogether unable to say anything general about reference or denotation or this picking out relation. OK, so we're in a bit of a bind. We need to use angle brackets if we want to say something general, they're potentially misleading, is there a way of explaining them which is not going to leave us misled? Indeed, there is. The most natural way for us to designate, and I'm going to slightly change the quotation as I go, the most natural way for us to designate angle bracket Hesperus, of course, is as the meaning of, quote, Hesperus. But that's not a function of Hesperus any more than angle bracket Hesperus is. It's rather a function of the phrase Hesperus in this language. So if we try to express what we want by saying that we should read, um, by saying the meaning of quote C denotes C, we're making the relationship between meaning and denotation, in Russell's phrase, linguistic through the phrase. Okay, so the, the general idea there is that there is a way of understanding how angle brackets work, where we're less likely to be misled into thinking that it indicates a one-place function. It's to explain intentional assent in terms of semantic assent. So anytime we come across angle brackets, blah, 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 we should read them as the meaning of, quote, blah, 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 in this language. And I, of course, have to add in the caveat in this language because words will mean different things in different languages, so you need to explicitly introduce some relativization along those lines. That's the third lesson from the Gray's Elegy argument. Now, at this point, Russell wants to draw a conclusion that the broadly Frigian approach to propositional constituents goes badly wrong. Because it seems like we've been forced to explain intentional assent in terms of semantic assent, so that now when we say uh, angle bracket C denotes C, we've ended up saying the meaning of quote C in this language denotes C. And that makes the relationship of meaning and denotation linguistic through the phrase. But Russell says it can't be. There must be a logical relation involved. <coughs> so this is meant to be an attack on broadly Frigian approaches to propositional constituents, tout court. Now, I don't want to follow Russell this far, just to be absolutely precise. 
The reason that I have talked through the Gray's Elegy argument is because I wanted to hold onto those three lessons, which I think are pretty uncontroversial for anyone who wants to adopt a broadly Freudian approach to propositional constituents. This last stage, which is sort of what makes it famous, is, I think, deeply controversial. In fact, I'm not sure that I see any reason to assume that the relationship of meaning and denotation has to be purely logical and can't go linguistic through the phrase. Um, so I'm not going to follow Russell that far. I just want to hold on to the three lessons, which, to repeat, because they're so important, are as follows. That angle brackets are potentially misleading. They don't indicate a one-place function. That if we abandon their use altogether, we'd be unable to say anything general about reference, and that there is a way to understand them. You make intentional assent depend upon semantic assent in this language. Those are the three lessons I want to take from the Gray's Elegy argument. And that's the Gray's Elegy argument, uh, all, all done. You'll notice one virtue of this explanation of the Gray's Elegy argument is that at no stage did I have to talk about the first line of Gray's Elegy, i.e. the curfew tolls the knell of parting day. The, one of the reasons that's a virtue is that doing that tends to confuse people. The other reason that it's a virtue is that it's a really bad poem, um, which is incredibly, incredibly long, and I'd rather we didn't spend any time talking about it. But the, the core of the argument doesn't require that I talk about the Gray's Elegy itself. Okay, those are all the lessons that I want to extract from the Gray's Elegy argument without having to mention Gray's Elegy. Uh, now I want to talk to you about minimalism about reference. And the reason I'm going to talk to you about minimalism about reference first, rather than minimalism about truth, is that firstly the Gray's Elegy argument seems to have quite a lot to do with reference, and secondly, minimalists about reference want to say something very much like we were trying to say in the previous slide, of the form angle bracket C refers to C. So the lessons are going to lift across quite straightforwardly. Okay, so you might think the reference is a deeply confusing notion. You might think it's confusing because uh, you've spent too much time thinking about Putnam's model theoretic arguments and it's left you all bamboozled. You might think that it's a confusing notion because you're wondering how it relates to causation or some other things. You might wonder how it relates to intentions. Minimalists about reference, such as Paul Horwich, say, don't worry, it's a very easy notion to get your head around. In fact, you can know everything there is to know about reference just by considering a very simple scheme, which is MR, for minimalism about reference. And the scheme is just, for any x, angle bracket C refers to x if and only if C equals x. Now, straight away, of course, you'll see the similarity between that scheme and the scheme I had a little bit earlier where I said, angle bracket C refers to C. In classical logic, in fact, they're equivalent schemes. The only reason I imagine that Horwich offers this scheme is because if we're dealing with uh, referentless expressions and we have a negative free logic or something like that, this will work slightly better. So another fun fact about, um, about Venus, uh, which is to say Hesperus, um, for a while it was believed that it has a moon called Neith, or Nith. I'm not really sure how you pronounce that. But we can plug in Nith into that scheme and we get, for any x, Angle bracket nith refers to x, if and only if nith is x. And then later we find out that it doesn't have a moon at all, so nith is just referentless because nothing is identical to nith, not even nith itself. So this handles cases of referentless singular terms better than the original scheme, angle bracket c refers to c. But I'm not really going to spend any time talking about um, referentless singular terms or anything like that. I might as well have stuck with the simpler scheme and everything would have gone through just like before. So you can already see there's going to be some promise for us applying the lessons from the Gray's Elegy argument to the minimalists about reference, given what they want to say. In particular, minimalists say that this scheme tells us everything there is to know about reference. And as I said at the start of this talk, there are many reasons you might object. 
You might think there's a lot more to reference that is uh, just going to be given by anything even remotely like this scheme. For example, you might want to know about the relationship between reference and causation or intention or something like that, and it doesn't seem like there'll be any handle on that just coming from the scheme. That's a fairly standard kind of objection. I don't want to run that objection. I want to run, I think, a, a more fundamental objection. And it runs like this. The first problem we encounter, if we think that this is going to tell us everything there is to know about reference, is that there are plenty of propositional constituents that I can't express in this language. Now, saying that puts me in a slightly difficult dialectical situation. I can't give you any very explicit examples of propositional constituents you can't express in this language, because I would thereby end up expressing them. But in order to convince you that there are propositional constituents which cannot be expressed in this language, let me give you just a quick example. Um, there are uncountably many real numbers. We only have countably many referring expressions in this language. As a result, it's easy to see, there must be some real numbers that I don't have explicit names for. Uh, so I don't really have any way of directly referring to those real numbers. So there are propositional constituents that I don't yet have able to express in this language as it stands now. And that raises a problem, because if you think that everything there is to know about reference is given to you by considering every instance of that scheme in this language, you're not going to give me every single reference fact. There are some propositional constituents which you've totally failed to say anything about. You haven't said the circumstances under which they refer to various objects. So you will have ended up with a theory of reference which is not comprehensive. It misses out a particular reference condition, i.e. it doesn't tell me anything about what some propositional constituent or other refers to. I think that's a, a serious problem for the minimalist. I think the minimalist has to have a comprehensive theory of reference. And the reason I think she needs a comprehensive theory of reference is fairly straightforward. She wants to tell us everything there is to know about reference if she hasn't given us the reference condition for some particular propositional constituent then there is some fact about reference that she hasn't told us about, namely what that propositional constituent refers to, if indeed it refers to anything. So she needs to offer a comprehensive theory of reference. She can't do that by offering MR as a scheme in this language, but the whole appeal of minimalism was that it looked very easy to say everything there was to know about reference because it was just one single scheme. There's a real problem for minimalists. What are they going to say in response? Well, there are at least two responses that I know of that minimalists could adopt in response to this problem, both of which are discussed by Paul Horwich. I'm only going to discuss one of those uh, responses in the talk. It's the one that he officially favours, and I'm going to explain why it can't possibly work. So, and I should say as well, actually, the response that I'm about to offer and put in the mouth of Paul Horwich isn't quite Horwich's own thing, even though I'm saying that it is. Um, it's what he says about the case of minimalism about truth, explicitly, word for word, um, but then transferred across to the case of reference. Because he actually only offers very sketchy remarks about reference and just says, yeah, the details will be exactly like in the case of the theory of truth. I've written a whole book about that. Just let me write a, like half a side on reference and that will convince you of stuff. So at the very least, I'm just going to try to convince you that you can't lift what he says concerning truth over to the case of reference. And then I'm going to convince you that there's something deeply wrong with what he says about truth anyway. Okay, so with that caveat aside, here's what Paul Horwich says, and that asterisk there just reminds you of that caveat. He tells us that we shouldn't regard MR as a scheme in the standard sense of the word scheme. So ordinarily you think of a scheme as a sentence template which you can generate actual sentences from by just replacing the sort of blanks in it with particular bits from your language. 
But we know that won't work because we know that's not going to give us a comprehensive theory of reference. So instead he says, let's let MR illustrate a single one-place function, that's a direct quote from him, which he also calls the propositional structure. That's a little unclear what that might mean, and it's best explained by example. So suppose you're considering the propositional constituent that we've had as the main focus so far, angle bracket Hesperus, and you're wondering, what does it refer to? Well, Horrocks says, take that constituent and plug it in to a one-place function, which is illustrated by MR, and you'll get out a proposition which gives you the reference condition for that constituent. In particular, you get out the proposition that for any x, angle bracket Hesperus refers to x, just in case Hesperus equals x. And you could have plugged any propositional constituent into that function, and you'd have got out the proposition stating that constituent's reference condition. So if you plugged in angle bracket phosphorus, you would have got out the proposition that angle bracket phosphorus refers to x for any x, if and only if phosphorus equals x. And now the thought is, well, I've been giving you examples of propositional constituents that I can express in this language, but you needn't be so restricted. We've got a general function which you plug in a propositional constituent and you get out a statement of that constituent's reference condition, but you can plug absolutely any propositional constituent into that function, including those which you can't express in this language. So now we get a comprehensive theory of reference just by considering all the propositions that you get when you consider any propositional constituent and plug them into this one-place function and so get out the statement of that constituent's reference condition. That's how we are supposed to address the challenge of comprehensiveness. So start with the propositional constituent, throw it into this one-place function black box thing that Horwich reckons is somehow illustrated by MR, and you get out the proposition stating its reference condition. Okay, that's how I understand minimalism. What I now want to convince you of is that it can't possibly work. So I'm going to try to do that by applying the lessons from the Gray's Elegy argument. You might remember that the lessons from the Gray's Elegy argument apply just in case you've adopted a broadly Phrygian approach to propositional constituents. That was the sort of initial assumption that got the ball rolling. So in order to try to apply the lessons to minimalism about reference at all, I first need to convince you that minimalists about reference should be broadly Phrygian in their attitude to propositional constituents. Now, it's at this moment that I'm going to start departing from some of the things that Horwich explicitly says in his book, Truth. In the book, he's officially very nonchalant about what the correct attitude to propositions is. So in certain places, he says, it doesn't matter what propositions, how you think of propositions, minimalism is going to come out as the correct theory of truth, whatever theory of propositions you have. Um, now, I'll come back to that, of course, in section four, uh, when I'm discussing minimalism about truth. For now, I just want to convince you that you can't be nonchalant about propositional constituents. In fact, there are plenty of approaches to propositional constituents where minimalism ends up being an absolutely terrible theory of reference for them. So let's start off just by considering Russell's own approach to propositions. So Russell is famous for the view that uh, in the proposition that Hesperus rotates, Hesperus itself is the, the relevant constituent to be thinking of. And there's an exchange between Russell and Frege where Changing the example slightly, uh, Frege says, what, Hesperus itself, you know, with its surface temperature of roughly 460 degrees centigrade and all its acid rain is a constituent of the proposition that Hesperus rotates. 
And Russell says, yeah, exactly that. Hesperus itself is a constituent of the proposition that Hesperus rotates. More generally, the propositional constituent of a proposition is going to be uh, the, the object that you thought the proposition was intuitively about. And so generally, these angle brackets, when they occur around singular terms, are just going to be completely redundant. Angle bracket C is just going to be identical with C. Now, there's lots of reasons to be dubious about that theory of propositions. Um, Frege's was something like an incredulous stare. Uh, there's more sophisticated reasons as well, which Frege also discusses. But I don't really care about them for now. Even supposing that Rossellian propositions are perfectly reasonable entities, there's a reason for minimalists not to adopt this approach. Because if you plug that in to the scheme MR, you end up with something quite absurd. You end up with a claim that for any x, c refers to x just in case c is identical with x. And that's obviously wrong. That tells you that every single object refers to itself and only to itself. Now, there are plenty of things which do refer to themselves. This expression is one of them. But um, most things don't refer to themselves. Most things, if they refer at all, refer to other things. So this is not a good theory of reference at all. So immediately we see minimalists about reference can't just adopt any old approach to propositions and prop their constituents. They need to take a little bit more care. Here's a different approach to propositional constituents, which is sort of in the same territory as Russell, but it's, uh, it's going to avoid that ridiculous absurdity. Um, you might think that what Russell was right about was that angle bracket Hesperus is the same thing as angle bracket Phosphorus. That is, you might think that Russell was right that for every object um, which can belong to a proposition, uh, there's, there's you know, just one propositional constituent which is relevant. So you can only refer to an object in one way, uniquely. Um, so this would be the view according to which you know, Hesperus is Phosphorus, indeed. Angle bracket Hesperus is angle bracket Phosphorus, but there's a, there's a gap as you go up one level of intentional ascent. That's not going to lead to the absurdity that MR1 is, but it's still not very conducive to a minimalist approach to reference. And the reason it's not conducive to a minimalist approach to reference is that this is not going to lead to minimalism at all, it's going to lead to a redundancy theory of reference on a par with the redundancy theory of truth. Because whenever you encounter any claim about reference, and whenever you encounter any appearance of angle brackets, they will be trivially eliminable. There won't be any need to bother with them. So reference will just turn out to be something you can eliminate along the lines of a redundancy theory, rather than something you should operate a distinctively minimalist attitude to. So whatever you think of this approach to propositional constituents in general, it's not something the minimalist should be in the game of pursuing. But the only thing that's left, really, is the broadly Freudian approach, according to which, although Hesperus is phosphorus, angle bracket Hesperus is distinct from angle bracket phosphorus. It's the approach which says, for any given object, there may be more than one way to refer to that object. So I now hope to convince you that minimalists about reference should adopt this broadly Freudian approach to propositional constituents. And now all I need to do is grind the handle on the lessons from the Gray's Elegy argument and show why minimalism about reference is wrong. So first lesson from the Gray's Elegy argument, recall, was that angle brackets, once you've adopted a broadly Freudian approach, are potentially misleading. They don't indicate a one-place function. And unfortunately, in this case, I can drop the potentially misleading. They have actually misled Paul Horwich. And here's how they've misled him. Remember that Horwich's solution to the challenge of comprehensiveness was to say that that scheme MR indicates a one-place function. So you look at the scheme, which is on your handouts. Um, you know, it's for any x, angle bracket C refers to x if and only if C equals x. And you think, oh, there's two instances of the letter C there, 
but really they're behaving the same way in each case so you only need to throw one object in and that's why it's a one place function that's that's how it's all meant to work but that's forgetting about the fact that one of those instances of C occurs within angle brackets now it'd be fine if there was a direct path from C to angle bracket C that is that would be fine if angle brackets indicated a one-place function. But there isn't a direct path. There's no backward road from Hesperus to angle bracket Hesperus. There's no direct path from C to angle bracket C. So MR would indicate a single one-place function as Horwich wants it to, if and only if angle brackets indicated a one-place function. But they don't. As a result, MR can't possibly indicate a single one-place function. Now, there's something I've glossed over a little bit in that presentation, which is buried in a very long footnote. Um, if you've read the footnote, then you, know, you, you don't get a prize for realising what it is that I've glossed over. If, if, if you immediately hearing that have worked out what it is that I've glossed over, you know, well done. But I'm not going to go into the, the glossing over thing. I don't think it matters at all. The main point is, I'm sticking by this claim, that the, the, the phrase MR can indicate a one-place function if and only if angle brackets indicate a one-place function. And because they don't, because we've adopted a broadly Phrygian approach to propositional constituents, Horwich's whole solution to the challenge of comprehensiveness fails. Well, that was just the first lesson from the Gray's elegy argument. There's two more to apply against Horwich, and things are already pretty bad for him. But let's keep working it through. Okay, so faced with the fact that um, MR can't indicate a one-place function, I guess we need to recognize that it indicates some kind of two-place function because on the right-hand side we've got C, on the left-hand side we've got angle bracket C and those are not, you know, there's no one-to-one -one mapping between them. So really what we've got is a two-place function which we should more clearly indicate by, oops, for any x, D refers to x if and only if C equals x. And now we're explicitly marking that it's a two-place function because we've got two very different slots to fill, the D slot and the C slot. Unfortunately, if you just leave that as your theory of reference, uh, that's, that's a complete disaster. That's even worse than Russell's uh, theory of reference. Um, because not only can you plug in the very same object um, twice into there, so you get out all the problematic consequences for Russell, you can also use this scheme to prove that there's only one object and it refers to itself. That's a, a very poor theory of reference, unless you're some kind of self-referential Zeno. Um, no one, least of all Paul Horrocks, should be a self-referential Zeno kind of guy. So we need to impose some constraints on this scheme. We need to say under what circumstances, when you're plugging in D, what C has to look like. So what kind of constraints could we impose? Well, what we want to say intuitively is that the first input, going into the D slot as it were, has to refer to the second input, going into the C slot. And then it will be fine, but unfortunately that's useless because that's to explain the concept of reference by invoking the concept of reference, and you can't any longer claim what the deflationist wanted to claim, namely to have deflated away the problematic concept of reference, because I don't know whether this you know, natural English use of the word refer here is picking out a heavyweight concept or a lightweight concept. So the minimalist can't say that, and Horwich says similar things about similar proposals elsewhere, so at least there's an ad hominem I'm on firm ground now. Well, you might just say, okay, um, Maybe I can't say anything explicit about what the constraints are, <coughs> but the correct theory of reference is just the one which consists of all the correct instances of this scheme which marks a two-place function. You could say that, but to just anticipate something that I say later in the paper, this would, in Davidson's phrase, have destroyed all appearance of a theory. 
you would have given up entirely on the idea of actually spelling out a theory of reference, or actually telling me under what conditions things refer to other things. If you want to say something general and systematic about reference, the short lesson is that you need to rely upon angle brackets, and that was just the second lesson from the Gray's Elegy argument. Okay, so we need angle brackets. They've already misled Horwich. What are we going to say about angle brackets which is not misleading? Well, of course, as with the third lesson from the Gray's Elegy argument, let's make intentional assent depend upon semantic assent. So now, given that we understand how to read or to pronounce angle brackets, we should go back to our original uh, sentence MR, or scheme MR, or whatever we're thinking of it, and unpack those angle brackets. And then we get out... Oh, sorry, that's, uh, I'll come back to that in a moment. Then we get out this. For any x, the propositional constituent expressed by quote c in this language refers to x if and only if c equals x. So if you follow the, the third lesson of the Gray's Elegy argument and you think you have to explain intentional assent in terms of semantic assent, that's what the minimalist scheme of reference now looks like. And just to go back <coughs> slightly in the slide, Horwich himself actually explicitly does this. He doesn't run through the you know, previous half hour or so that I've been talking about Russell's Gray's Elegy argument. He doesn't try to draw any morals from the Gray's Elegy argument. He just explicitly says, I'm employing the convention that surrounding any expression with angle brackets produces an expression referring to the propositional constituent expressed by E. And I take it that's just for him to immediately say, let's understand intentional assent in terms of semantic assent. Okay, so we end up with this scheme. I've called it MRL to indicate the relativization to a language, which we've now had to introduce. Now, the first thing to note about this scheme is that it still can't possibly point us towards a one-place function. That should be even more obvious now than it was when we were dealing with angle brackets, because it's very clear that the two occurrences of the letter C in that scheme play very different roles. One is being used, one is being mentioned, and there is no backward route from uh, the, mentioned, uh, the used thing to the mentioned thing. Um, you know, things don't have canonical names in this language or indeed in any other. So this really clearly cannot indicate a one-place function. And it's odd indeed that Horwich, within a paragraph and a half of giving his explicit definition of angle brackets, claims that it does indicate a one-place function. It's unfortunate for him. Moreover, and more importantly, it cannot possibly address the challenge of comprehensiveness if you say that this is somehow meant to point us towards everything there is to say about reference. And the reason for that is not just that this doesn't indicate a one-place function, it's that it, it just can't be pointing us in the right kind of direction. I can imagine a minimalist saying, look, I wanted to give you all the reference conditions for every propositional constituent, and I pointed you towards a whole bunch of them using MRL. And now, can't you just see how to go on in the same kind of a way? Can't you generate the rest of the theory? Um, well, I don't mind the ones that she explicitly gives us. I don't mind those instances of MRL that are just obtained by plugging in for C expressions of this language. So, you know, if the minimalist says, for any X, the constituent expressed by, quote, Hesperus in this language refers to X if and only if Hesperus equals X, that's fine. The problem is that she needs to tell me something about what the reference conditions are for those constituents that I can't express in this language. And what she said here is, to understand the reference condition, think about the word that you use to express the constituent, and that will tell you what it refers to. And say, I don't have a word to express that constituent, so you can't possibly have pointed me towards the reference condition for those kinds of constituents. So basically, by introducing 
uh, of relativization to this language, which she's unavoidably had to do in the face of the Gray's Elegy argument lessons, she's made it impossible for her to supply us with reference conditions for any of the constituents that I can't express in this language. So just to sum up the problem very quickly, the minimalist about reference has a kind of, she's, she's forced into adopting a broadly Frigian approach to propositional constituents. As a result, she's forced to explain intentional assent in terms of semantic assent in this language. But once you're dealing with semantic assent in this language, that's totally useless when it comes to thinking about things outside this language. That's the nutshell summary version of the problem faced by the minimalist about reference. That's everything I want to say about reference. I now want to just basically take all the lessons that I've told you about reference and transfer them across to the case of truth. Um, it's a fairly straightforward translation. The reason I want to go through it explicitly is that I think it, it, it should help to cement the argumentative strategy that I'm offering. And also, in the case of truth, I don't have to keep saying angle bracket. And I don't have to say propositional constituents. I can say proposition and the proposition that, which I think ought to make it just a little bit easier to follow. Um, I'm also aware that I haven't told you any of the interesting facts about the rotation of Venus that I said I was going to tell you about. So let me tell you one very interesting fact about it. Venus rotates on its axis more slowly than it orbits the sun. So a Venusian year is shorter than a Venusian day-night cycle. Fun fact. Here's another fun fact about the rotation of Venus, actually, while, while I'm in this territory. Um, if you look at the solar system from above the Earth's north pole, then all of the planets orbit the sun anti-clockwise, and all of them rotate on their axes anti-clockwise, except Venus, which orbits anti-clockwise, but rotates clockwise. Anyway, okay, so back to, back to truth and things about truth. Um, so... Again, you might think that truth is a mysterious, deeply dark, confusing concept, um, but no, don't worry, says the minimalist. Actually, it can be demystified very easily. It's all encapsulated by a single scheme, the famous minimalist scheme, the proposition that P is true if and only if P. That's all you need to know about truth. That's very tempting to think that that would be the case, but we run into an immediate problem, of course. If you just consider all of the instances of this scheme in this language, you fail to give me the truth condition of some proposition, because there are propositions that you can't express in this language. Again, it's hard to give any particular example of one, but I assure you there are some such propositions. So if we just consider MT as an axiom scheme in the standard sense, we're going to end up with a theory of truth that is not comprehensive. We will miss out on some important truth conditions, and that means that minimalism has failed. So the minimalist needs to somehow avoid the challenge of comprehensiveness, to give all the truth conditions for absolutely every proposition, while saying that they can be generated just by reflecting on those tiny, tiny, tiny little bits of uh, blue on that um, presentation slidey thing there. How do we do that? Horwich says, um, stop thinking about MT as an axiom scheme in the standard sense. Start thinking about it as indicating a single one-place function, of course. So to illustrate how that works, Suppose you're considering the proposition that Hesperus rotates, which we now know is true and idiosyncratic. If we want to consider the truth condition for that proposition, just plug it into the one-place function, and you get out a proposition which gives you the truth condition for that proposition. In particular, it gives you the proposition that the proposition that Hesperus rotates is true if and only if Hesperus rotates. But you could have plugged any proposition at all into this one-place function and got out the truth condition for that proposition, so you've got this map from propositions to propositions stating their truth conditions. And 
that gives you your comprehensive theory of truth. You don't need to restrict yourself just to those propositions which you can express in this language. So the minimalist theory of truth is just going to be all the propositions that result from plugging any proposition at all into this one-place function which is indicated by MT. That's Horwich's official line for minimalism. And again, it's not going to work for exactly the same reasons as minimalism about reference doesn't work. Now, there's, a, there's going to be a crucial lacuna in, in my argument to that effect. Because the first thing, of course, I need to convince you of, if I'm going to get the Gray's Energy argument stuff running at all, is that the minimalist needs to adopt a broadly Frigian approach to propositions. After all, if she adopts some other approach to propositions, we won't get running off down that line where we say, you know, uh, angle brackets don't indicate one place function. Um, and I'm just going to claim that outright and not say too much about it in this talk. I'm going to say minimalists really ought to be considering Frigian propositions rather than other kinds of propositions. Uh, let me just say a couple of things to make that plausible. Suppose we adopted a Rossellian approach to propositions. So we thought that the proposition that Hesperus rotates was an ordered pair consisting of rotation and Hesperus. Then, in particular, our instance of the scheme would be that this ordered pair, rotation Hesperus, is true if and only if Hesperus has the property of rotation. Well, that's fine, but at that stage you might well wonder what separates the minimalist from the correspondence theorist of truth. That's what Hartree Field objects um, against uh, Horwich in a book review of the first version of uh, Horwich's truth. Um, I actually think you can say a bit more about that. I think we can show fairly conclusively that if MT is genuinely going to indicate a one-place function, then the correspondence theory, minimalism, and the redundancy theory of truth all collapse into one another. Uh, just because there's not enough richness of structure to keep them apart. That's something I argue in section six, but alas, I don't have time in this talk. So you're just going to have to take it that there's a really exciting result that I didn't bother giving you. And then you might think, how certain was he if he didn't bother to include that in his talk? So anyway, I'm just going to stick with the claim now that minimalism only looks plausible for a broadly Frigian approach to propositions. And once we've got that, it's very easy to see how the lessons from the Gray's Elegy argument apply. It's just a routine exercise. So because the proposition that Hesperus rotates is not the same as the proposition that Phosphorus rotates, <coughs> the proposition that Hesperus rotates does not depend functionally upon the rotation of Hesperus, that is, the rotation of Phosphorus. So angle brackets don't indicate anything which looks even remotely like a function. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a Phrygian pinch of salt that you need to offer me here in explaining all of this to do with the concept horse that I'm not going to get into. Um, but the main point is, just as usual, because they don't indicate a one-place function, nor can MT. We're not plugging the same thing into both of those gaps. Recognizing that it's a two-place function, then we might say, look, all you need to know about truth is given by a scheme of the form Q is true, if and only if P, and that's obviously completely useless as it stands. Thinking about the way in which you'll need to constrain it, you realize, well, what I need is some device like angle brackets to explain the relationship between the left and the right side. So I need angle brackets, but they don't indicate a one-place function, and I don't want to be misled by them. What am I going to say? Well, you say exactly what Horwich does explicitly say. You say you read angle brackets in terms of semantic assent in this language. Um, so you explain intentional assent via semantic assent. Given that reading, the scheme MT becomes MTL, the relativization to a language there, that the proposition expressed by, quote, P in this language is true if and only if P. And that can't possibly help you concerning the truth condition of propositions that you can't express in this language, because it's giving you the truth conditions in a way which is linguistic through the phrase of your own language, and you just don't have the phrases to hand. So this can't possibly solve the challenge of comprehensiveness, and minimalism is screwed. 
Okay, that's, that's basically the whole argument. Um, I'm just uh, going to say something very quickly before I explain how it is that minimalism went completely wrong, at what stage they went wrong. Um, which is, I've presented this argument to you as if what you need to do is think very hard about the Gray's Elegy argument, then think about minimalism, and then you'll see why minimalism is wrong. That's not actually how I came to offering this argument. I, I was suspicious of minimalism. I read Davidson's paper, The Folly of Trying to Define Truth. I was like, that's it. That's why minimalism is wrong. And then as I tried to explain what was going on in Davidson's argument against Horwich, I realized that I was basically recapitulating the three lessons from the Gray's Elegy argument. So I think there's an interesting common core to the Gray's Elegy argument, something Davidson once said in a very, very, very compressed cryptic passage, and something I'm now trying to say to you all. So three obscure arguments there, all tied together. Um, okay. I just wanted to give a nod to Davidson because I think he's, he's awesome and people often forget just how awesome he is. What I want to do now is explain to you um, not that minimalism is wrong. I take it that I've accomplished that goal. And I want to give you something which will make you stop being tempted by minimalism if you ever were tempted by it. Because it's one thing to see that a position is wrong. It's, it's another thing to not keep coming back to it as if you can find some kind of solution. So... Basically, the way I'm going to do that is to talk about one of Horwich's most explicit ways of trying to motivate minimalism and explain how it feeds into the argument of this paper. And so you see just very clearly that Horwich goes wrong at the outset. And I literally do mean at the outset, because this is the first paragraph from the preface to the first edition of Horwich's book, Truth. Um, so the first edition is in 1990, but I'm quoting it from the 1998 version. And here's, here's the whole paragraph, just to check that I'm not, you know, um, any sleight of hand. He says, perhaps the only points about truth on which most people could agree are, first, that each proposition specifies its own condition for being true, e.g. the proposition that snow is white is true, if and only if snow is white, and second, that the underlying nature of truth is a mystery. The general thrust of this book is to turn one of these sentiments against the other. I want to show that truth is entirely captured by the initial triviality, so that nothing could be more mundane and less puzzling than the concept of truth. Okay, the particular claim that I object to here is the first claim. So it's the first claim in the first sentence of the first paragraph, the preface to the first edition, that claim that each proposition specifies its own condition for being true. And just to convince you that I'm not being unfair in quoting from the preface where, you know, he's being at his, his loosest and just trying to help us along, here are two further quotes where he says essentially the same thing. The central principle governing our overall deployment of the truth predicate is very roughly that each statement articulates the conditions that are necessary and sufficient for its own truth. And equally, the minimalist strategy focuses on the way that every statement trivially specifies its own condition for being true. Okay, suppose that Horwich were right about this. Suppose that propositions did specify their own truth conditions. In that case, it would be very easy to provide a comprehensive theory of truth. You'd just let every proposition specify its own truth condition, and that would be it. Just let them do it. They can do the talking. And of course, that's very similar to the way in which he wants to plug propositions into an obvious one-place function to get their truth conditions out. So that's when he says that I'm glossing this roughly, that's what he means. Okay, so if every proposition specifies its own truth condition, it's very easy to get a comprehensive theory of truth. And from there, the route to minimalism is very simple because history reveals, as you look through the annals of august institutions like the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society, you realize it's very hard to say anything about truth that people generally agree with, apart from those trivial specifications of truth conditions. And at that point, the thought occurs, maybe there is nothing more to say about truth than just those truth conditions, and so you've been led all the way down to minimalism. Oops. But that's just wrong. 
It's wrong because propositions don't specify their own truth conditions. And in fact, that's very easy to see. You don't need any of the considerations of this paper particularly to convince you of that. So if I consider the proposition that snow is white, it's very hard for me not to think, oh, I know its truth condition. It's true just in case snow is white. But let's consider some other propositions. Let's consider Tarski's favorite proposition. What's the truth condition for that? Does it specify its own condition for being true? I don't particularly feel any temptation to say that it does anymore. Or connecting with the second lesson from the Gray's Elegy argument, suppose I just use the name Q to pick out some proposition or other. Now, does Q specify its own condition for being true? I don't particularly feel any pull to say that it does. But this can be so even though the proposition that snow is white just happens to be Tarski's favorite proposition, which also just happens to be Q. <laughs> What this should make us realize is that it's not propositions that specify their own truth conditions. Rather, it's certain modes of presenting propositions that specify truth conditions. If I present a proposition to you as the proposition that de-dum-de-dum-de-dum, -de -dum -de -dum, then I have thereby, in so doing, specified its truth condition. But if I present it to you in some other way, I haven't done anything at all about its truth condition yet. Of course, it has a truth condition, but I haven't specified it for you. Um, now, of course, the phrase, the proposition that, de dum de dum de dum is just very central to the way in which we think about propositions, particularly if we're philosophers. So that's why we might end up being mistakenly drawn towards the idea that propositions specify their own conditions for being true, just because this is something like the canonical way that you pick out propositions. Um, and moreover, if it were the case that every proposition could be picked out in this language using a phrase of the form, the proposition that, de dum de dum de dum then it would just be a harmless oversimplification to think that propositions specify their own truth condition. After all, instead of letting each proposition tell you the circumstances under which it's true, you'd just let the canonical specification of each proposition tell you the circumstances under which it's true. And then you'd equally well get out your comprehensive minimal theory of reference. And then you might well be tempted to say, and there's nothing left to say apart from those claims. But the whole point of this paper is to convince you that we can't do that. In this language, there are plenty of propositions that I cannot pick out using any phrase of the form, the proposition that. And moreover, the other upshot of this paper is that the whole locution, the proposition that, is to be understood in terms of semantic assent within this language. So when Horwich tells us that every proposition specifies its own truth condition, he ignores the role played by semantic assent within this language. And that leaves him totally unable to see the real threat of comprehensiveness. As a result, it's not so much that minimalists don't say enough about reference and truth and things of that nature. You can do the same stuff with satisfaction. All of these notions, there's a minimalist attempt to deflate away the concept. It's not so much that they succeed in telling you something but not saying enough. It's just they can't even articulate what they wanted to try to articulate. Minimalism doesn't fail because there's some general fact about truth that it fails to get. It just fails to get off the ground at all. And you can learn that just by thinking about the Gray's Elegy argument. Thanks.